A nearly decade-old racial discrimination case at NASA has gained momentum. It alleges the agency's performance evaluations systematically discriminated against black and Asian American employees. Now that the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission has officially certified two classes of employees, the original case filers will represent more than 2,000 feds who were potentially impacted. Michael Leader is an attorney at Mary and Scalett who represents employees in the case. Leader tells Federal News Network's Drew Friedman that even though EEOC certified the classes, there's still a lot of legwork left to do on this case. Under the EEOC procedures, unlike in federal court, one doesn't get much discovery before having to move for class certification. We had 90 days of written discovery. We haven't been able to conduct any depositions. So we are at this point not certain what the problems are, but we strongly suspect that two of the main problems are that under NASA's system, managers are encouraged to evaluate employees based on from two to four different tasks for the entire year. And if you think about your own job or most people's jobs, they consist of lots more than two to four significant job responsibilities. So the managers and the employees, to the extent they have input, have to write these expectations about the performance in a level of abstraction such that they give really almost no guidance to the managers or the employees about what it is they're expected to do. Now comes the end of the year, and the managers have a great deal of discretion in what type of rating to give the employees. The managers who are doing the ratings are disproportionately white, and we believe that that factors in. We also don't think that NASA has given its employees adequate training about how they are supposed to go about doing these ratings, especially when they're supposed to somehow do it where they're identifying two to four tasks that people will be evaluated on. Those are what we strongly suspect at this point may be causing the problems, but we also can't tell for certain what the issues are until we are allowed to pursue more discovery. How is this really impacting the employees at NASA who said that they were being discriminated against? You know, did this have effects on their pay or the day to day operations that they were doing? It has impact on pay in two ways. These employees are under the general services schedule. Someone who has worked is in GS-14 and has worked whatever number of years, the expectation is they might be in step five of GS-14 and there's a standard salary. But at NASA, individuals based on their performance ratings can get step-level promotions. So they can get promoted instead of in the normal temporal scope, they might move from four to five, maybe they move from six or from four to seven, and that means higher pay. They also get end-of-the-year awards based on their performance appraisal. And that's going to be obviously affected by the ratings. 
the ratings are also something that have input into promotion decisions in all three ways. Lower ratings can affect pay. How many employees have actually come forward in the case? Do you expect that number to grow as the case progresses? Our hope is as news of the decision and of the class spreads that we will get more people coming forward and to tell us about their experiences. You mentioned NASA potentially not having adequate training, which might have led to some of the issues with the performance metrics. Were there other things that you think NASA could change or improve that would remove the discrimination aspect of the performance evaluations? There are various things that different employers, private employers, have tried to try to make evaluations more accurate. One is not to wait till the end of the year to try to provide input as tasks are done. A second possibility is to increase the number of performance metrics typically used. What we will need to do is, with the help of our expert, now that we're able to do more discovery, to find out a little bit more about the system and then the employment practices at NASA before we can suggest concrete steps that they can do. But certainly it's our expectation that we will, by later in the case after we do discovery, be in a position to make specific suggestions about what would improve things. I'm curious why the case has taken, you know, since it was filed in 2013, why has it taken so long to move forward? It's been almost 10 years. I think what we're experiencing, and it's not just in this case, is that the federal government, Congress, has not appropriated enough money for sufficient administrative judges. The federal employees, unlike private employees, if there's a dispute that can't be resolved, the cases before EEOC administrative judges, nothing against the judges, but they are swamped. When you read decisions of the administrative judges in cases, a few maybe in districts that are adequately staffed move at a faster pace. You frequently see cases that have been on the books for five years, 10 years, even occasionally 15 years or more. If we could get more administrative judges for the EEOC process, that would be a good thing. The EEOC granted class certification. NASA has until November to potentially appeal that. So what is what's next for the case or where does it where does it go from here? Proceedings would stop before the administrative judge and the appeal would be heard by the EEOC's office that handles these appeals, which is called the Office of Federal Operations. Once the appellate branch had decided the appeal, it would come back to the administrative judge. If NASA decides not to appeal, there'd be two things. One is that notice would be provided to class members that they're part of a class. You had asked earlier about how many people had come forward once they know that they're part of a class. We're hopeful that a good number will. 
the second thing is we'll be able to start on more robust discovery to try to find out more facts about the performance appraisal system and its flaws and how it affects class members. Michael Leader is an attorney with Mary and Scalett who represents federal employees in a discrimination case at NASA. Speaking with Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Check out Drew's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's it's catching when when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there. Um, I didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did. You know, in retrospect, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement, And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really 
sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together. Because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we we actually work with a, a number of those too, and and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day jobs. And he thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour. And you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. 
And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. Is I'm I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, "Have you ever thought about a career in in federal service?" And she said. Uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right? And diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay, and stay um, engaged and passionate. And then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES-level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply. 
Your story. It lives in River City. Where you can enjoy a metropolitan vibe and a small town feel. Where we set the standard for service and looking out for one another. Where there's so much more than steak in our thriving food scene. Your story is the story of Omaha. Told by those who live it and love it. Whether that's helping you keep up with the Cornhuskers or creating the content you crave. And here in the Omaha World Herald is where it comes to life. Omaha World Herald. Where your story lives.